This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are back with Josh Basset to consider the boundaries established for the tabernacle and the love hidden within them. Yes, here we are, moving on to the next section of the tabernacle project and day two of creation, which is where we're going to begin. Um, and uh, Brent, I, I never mind if you just jump into the text unless Marty needs to say something. I give it my Bayma blessing. Don't jump into the text. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, never, never can argue with jumping straight into the text. Mm-hmm. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. All right. Well, this is this is a particularly interesting day. And I'm actually, I'm going to have to be very, very careful with this episode because this is probably... Uh, quite, quite possibly my most treasured teaching of all Torah has to do with uh, the second day of creation, which if you know anything about what the Ramban with an N, what the Ramban says about this, you would uh, maybe start to get a sense of why it's so important to me. But um, without going too deep into it, which is hold on, where hold I'm, on, hold on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now you, you've referenced this before, but Unless they're, unless you're holding out on us for a strategic reason, are you going to tell us what the Rambam said? Because it's glorious. Okay, yes. So, um, uh, Rambam said a lot of stuff, but one of the things, the thing he said that got my my uh, ears twitching was he said that uh, for the people who know what's going on with day two, you're not allowed to teach it to anyone. Ooh. And if you don't know what's going on in day two, don't ask about it. <laughs> Which is like... <laughs> How can you not? How can you not get curious after hearing something like that? Which I've always wondered is exactly his point. It feels like mm-hmm. it just feels like a very rumbun thing to do. But nevertheless, yeah. And and you put on top of that, it's uh, the only of the uh, the six main days of creation that is not called good. We didn't hear the God saw it was good. Uh-huh. Um, it's also weird in some other ways. You know, we we've noted before that the first three days of creation um, all involve the theme of separating. Yes. Um, but uh, something different is happening in the separation here than anywhere else. And and let's dive into that with our, you know, structure of going through this. What is the the element? What are the chunks, the broad chunks of creation that God is messing with? It, like in day two? Yeah, day two. Uh, are, are you alluding to that it is the same thing on both sides of the separation? It is. It's the same thing. It's not light and dark. You know, peeking ahead, it's not dry land and water, which in both cases are pretty opposite of each other. Here, mm-hmm. it's like not even kind of off. They're just the same thing, just literally the same thing. And so, yeah, the 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 primary element we have is water. Just God messing around with water. Nothing, nothing super new is created. I mean, obviously, we have the 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 vault, which um, the Hebrew word like refers to something that is. Um, like hammered out very thin. Um, I'm sure Elle and what she talked about with the craftsmanship language of day two could go a lot more in depth than that. And um, honestly, I, I think because of how this is connected to the, the Mishkan and, and how much the Mishkan is all about craftsmanship language. I, from the beginning, I'm like, man, this would have been cool if I just had um, L do the whole series with me, but that would, that would be very selfish. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, yeah. So the, the, the vault is just like this little, like thin space. It doesn't even really 
get into it that much, but uh, uh, it's a little bit, it, we'll have to think more about what exactly we think of when we think of this expanse. Cause obviously, you know, when we think of waters above and waters below, like what does that start to bring to mind? Like when you think of the real world? Uh, well, sorry, here comes my fundamentalist Bible college teaching. I think of the water canopy up above the earth. And I think of the, you know, whatever you want to call it, spring water, water within the earth, the stuff that comes out from. Yeah. So that's what I think of. Yeah. And, and this is a great point. We know there is water up in the sky and that's a little um, curious, like, you know, these uh these ancient people surely they didn't know about uh the water vapor uh and the you know what you talked about with the canopy and the water cycle like they they didn't have this scientific understanding that we have today like how on earth did they know that there was water up there oh you'd make some assumptions based off of rain i would assume like there's got to be water up there somewhere exactly there's rain and that kind of uh that's the big hint. There's, there has to be water up there, or else how would it fall down? Um, so, so let's step back. Oh my, my goodness! I'm, I've already been straying away from my system. So the elements we have, we have the waters, and how does God interact with them? He separates them. So then we have this expanse, and then what is God? How does God interact with the expanse? He puts it in. I'm totally shooting off the hip here. He names it. He does name it. Okay. And he puts it in place like he uh, – doesn't he put the vault in place? Am I remembering that correctly? No, no. You're, you, there there are uh, other days where God is putting things in place. But this one, God is – is it says God made it. Okay. And it uses a, ver- a common word that's going to be throughout all this, throughout the Mishkan, days of creation. It's all through it. And it's the word um, uh, vaya'as or asa. And – it's important to know, like, we won't be going super in depth into this. Um, so this is not, this is not going to be on the test, but we should understand that the sense of it is work that involves a process. Like it's not, it's not like when it says earlier, you know, uh, God created the world like that, that is a very, um, like L talked about how it's like carving out, like it's a kind of indelible action. It's, it's an, it has an immediacy to it. This is the opposite. This is a word that has like the sense of it taking time to do. So God is making the, uh, the, the firmament, the vault, the, whatever we want to call it. And what's interesting about that is that, um, we, we should note that this is different language from day one, day one, God said it. It happened. Now God said, let there be a firmament. And the text didn't just say, and there was a firmament. It said God made the firmament, which is a, I think, a significant difference that we are going to have to think about. Um, But what else? Let's, let's think a little bit more about this expanse. What was, what was the purpose of the expanse? To separate water from water. Yes. So did the expanse do its job? Let's read it closely. (laughs) God made the expanse. And he separated between the waters which were beneath the expanse and the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. Yeah. So maybe not. And if we think about it even more, we know that the expanse doesn't actually separate the waters. Like, not in the sense of, like, a wall. Because of what Marty said earlier. It, it, if it is a wall, it's a bad wall because <laughs> water keeps getting through. It doesn't keep them permanently apart. Very different from, you know, light and darkness, which we can, like, see very differently, uh, very distinctly. Hmm. 
Is this making sense? Fascinating. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, we and again, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm trying really hard to to keep us on time and on track. I, I promise I won't go too much into this, but <laughs> as you mentioned, Brent, this ends with God um, naming the expanse, and what does God name it? Sky. In the Hebrew, more specifically, it's the word shemaim, which is the word for heavens. Oh, yep. Which heavens? Yep. Um, yeah, sky is definitely an appropriate way to call that, but but also we should know that anytime it says heaven, heavens, it's the same word here. So we have this this kind of um, liminal in between space that God has created that is there to separate the waters, but it doesn't like literally separate them like you know like like if you have one of those you know like plates that has little different compartments for your food, it doesn't keep the water apart that way. It separates them almost the way like like a border does. Like it, it, you know, if you go to the border between states or countries, like there's, well, I mean, sometimes there's a literal wall there, but oftentimes it's just, you know, it's an imaginary line on the ground. Um, it's a little bit more like that, and and so I think um, one of the questions, if we start thinking about this in terms of like putting ourselves in this, day one, God told you, hey, I know your life starts in chaos. In darkness, you you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's true. You don't know what's real. I'm here to help you understand, be able to relate to the world around you, have a real uh, understanding of where you are, what you're doing. And now here we have kind of a similar situation where God says like, okay, you start separated, you start isolated. And, you know, waters are often an image for, for people groups, large groups of people. And, um, and it's the rabbis have pointed this out many times. This isn't giving too much away, but they, they say the reason God didn't call this day good is because God's separating something from itself. Water, water kind of likes to be together. I mean, even the, uh, you know, an ancient person just observing water, you can see like, you know, the way water forms surface tension and things like that, like water, water connects with itself very well. And if we think about it in terms of water as an analogy for people, um, I think just like, you know, last episode, we talked about kind of the, the problem of evil, the problem of being brought into a world that, that, that's kind of rough and, and it's not our fault for being born. We just, we don't know what to do with it. So too, like we come into a world and it's not easy to connect with people. We are kind of in a fundamental way, especially if we think about how hard it is sometimes to communicate and share, share our heart, share what's in our head we do start out pretty, pretty isolated. It takes a lot of work to, to connect with people on that level. Right. Anyone else relate to that? Yeah, I can, I'm trekking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so we could say like, man, God, like kind of the question we ask at Babel, like why, why is there this separation? Why did you make it so dang hard to connect with people? Um, why, why is it so hard to do this? And I think that's where the boundary here um, is the key, because like I said before, it doesn't really function as a wall. Um, so I, I want you to think for a couple of seconds, what's a kind of separation between two spaces, but not only can you pass through it, but you're kind of intended to pass through it. A door. A door. Ding, ding, ding. Um, so... 
the boundary God creates between by, us. By it, the way, Brent, is this how you feel when I grill you all the time? Ask your question. <laughs> I am really enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- this might be triggering to Ben too. I know he, uh, he he doesn't enjoy when I get this way with him no. either. Um, so we have this um, we have this door that God creates, and and again to remind us, God is this is a, a work in progress. This door is some place where God is continually working, and especially when we know how the imagery of heaven is used throughout not just the Torah but the whole Tanakh and the whole uh, New Testament. Like, mm-hmm. what else would we say about heaven and God's relationship to it? Um, I, just, just Sunday school answer here. Yeah, I would say he's on the other side. He's on the other side of heaven. Like that's where he's at. It's not interesting. Okay, so uh, uh, I I would say that it's uh, God is often located in heaven, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Like heaven is where God is, where God lives, where God dwells, and here we also see it's it's where God's like working on this door. Yeah. But that and what's interesting here is that I think um, not th- this could be seen as an analogy, like not just between human beings that are separated just because of you know, communication and we have skulls around our brains and don't have telepathy, but also like there's this sense of when we think of the waters below, I mean, obviously there are, um, like you said, Marty Springs, but most of the water below is like not, um, that's where all the chaos images come from, right? You have a wadi, you have the ocean, you have all these unpredictable things. A lot of that water you can't even drink. Yeah, the abyss. It's a little bit dangerous. Yep. Yes, it's the abyss. And then you have this water above, and it's fresh. Life-giving. And it's pure. It's life-giving. And so I think this is also important to see in terms of relationships between people who have and people who don't have, who are in a, a place of real lack. Okay, so question. This is totally unrelated, but... Is this why nobody listened to Noah when he talked about a flood destroying the earth and the rains? Because they thought of it as pure. Like, how could that destroy the earth? What are you talking about? That's very interesting. I I don't know. That that gets into, for me, that gets into, like, how did ancient people actually, like, symbolically see rain? I mean, I know a lot of it was fertility. So, yeah, the idea of it being something that brought death might have been that. But the rabbis would also quibble with you because the the text does not say that Noah tried to reach out to anyone outside his family. Mm. Um, There's a whole conversation there, especially because the Torah gives like an asterisk when it calls Noah righteous. It says he was righteous in his time or in his generation, which Mm -hmm. is like You could look at that as like he was righteous, even though everyone else was not, or you could read it as like he was righteous, but you know, compared to what was in the con. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Compared to what? Precisely. Yeah, I guess my assumption is just that somebody would have asked him over the course of 100 years, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) And then they would have dismissed him when he explained it as like, uh, what are you talking (laughs) about, dude? Rain doesn't destroy the earth. That's true. But you see why this is so easy to get lost in. Um, Yeah. I'm 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 trying to step out of the the rabbit hole here. Um so we have we have this like really rich image of the separation between people both we could just see it like in our individualistic uh you know kind of hellenistic context of not being able to purely communicate our thoughts and emotions which is kind of what we're uh, uh we look at it from our point of view here to maybe a more 
um, ancient perspective of like, oh man, there's so much good stuff just right up there and I'm waiting for it to fall. I'm stuck down here where it's, it's not as easy to, to find fresh water. And up there, man, they're just rolling in the fresh water. And to see that as like, yeah, there are people there, there's, there's Egypt and they've got, they don't even need rain. They have rain in the, in the Nile. They have fresh water as much as they need. And, uh, and so I think there's, a lot of the way that this day sets things up is to think about like where we are, where we need rain, where we can be rain. And to look at that as something that separates us from, from other people. And then when we see God come into the middle of that and start building a door, what does that door kind of function as? Story-wise. Well, I, I I don't know what you may be looking for here. It either separates because it's a door. So it separates those mm-hmm. waters above from the waters below. But it's also a door. So mm-hmm. it's also, I mean, there's I, I don't, possibility is the word I'm thinking of. Like, apparently this door is going to open every now and then. There's going to be some interaction yeah. between one side and the other side. If it's at all door imagery, yes. the door doesn't just separate. The door also grants access. Yes, exactly. God, the door, like if God, God's the one who separated the waters, right? The door isn't actually keeping them apart. Right. God builds the door. And, you know, if we're, if we're looking at this as a film and, you know, the camera zooms in on the water below and then zooms in up on the sky and, you know, let's imagine we could see the water up there and then we cut to a door. We think, oh, there's a way for these two things to get, to get across to each other. There's a, there's an invitation to move, but God doesn't do that for us, right? We have to be the ones to cross over. We have to be the ones to fall like rain. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, whether that is in us, like taking the first step in relationships and, and being intimate and giving love to people when we haven't received it first, or whether that's, you know, reaching out to people who, are in greater need than we are and uh, not just, you know, using our excess for ourselves or for our tribe, but to, to look beyond that, look at who is across that firmament. Um, I think that's the invitation here of like, you know, you, yeah, you begin in, in loneliness. And I think that's very relatable in, in our era right now. We begin in loneliness, but God is always building a door. And when we walk through that door, what are we by definition passing through? Uh, heaven. Yeah, heavens. Yeah. If you want to get to heaven, you can only pass through it when you're in the act of reaching across and, and trying to love someone else. Love is what draws us through that door. All right. Now you're just sounding like Jesus. So knock that off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the idea. That's the idea, man. So... Man, yeah, there's so much more we could talk about this. Um, but it's important to note, too, you know, when we think about this in a hierarchical sense, because this isn't a division like, you know, left and right. This is an up and down division, which makes me think of a hierarchy. And, you know, the fact that there's fresh water up there and not as much fresh water below and a lot more dangerous water below, that seems to reinforce the idea that there's kind of a natural hierarchy there. And if we were thinking in terms of hierarchy, where would we expect God to be? At the top. At the top. But God's not at the top. He's in the middle. God's in between. Yes. God is in the middle, which um, if we understand the the structure of the days of creation, this is definitely going to come back in day five. Don't you worry. Uh-huh. But uh, we'll get to that later. Um, 
so we have God sitting kind of at the the nexus at the at the doorway between the uh the people at the top of the hierarchy and the people at the bottom the the meeting place between uh people that are separated that's where God is God is creating repairing building that door to to incite us to to spur us to go across to go through the door and um so that is where I want our heads to be at. God, God telling us like, yeah, you're, I know you're lonely. I know you feel isolated. Uh, you feel like an outcast or a foreigner, or there's people like that around you. Look for the door. Where's that door? You can walk through it. Like this is not, this is not a light and dark thing where you kind of need light to be able to get anything started. This is something you can do. You can cross over with this in mind. Let's go ahead and read some of Exodus 26. This is a very tedious chapter, so we're going to be um, doing a little Frankenstein version of it. Frankenstein. So, uh, Brent, why don't you go ahead and tackle that first chunk there? Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 together. And then jump it down a little bit. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red, and over that a covering of the other durable leather. And there's that weird word again. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, we're not we're not going to dive too much into that. But, um, yeah, we we see this pattern of, of two... I mean, we're, we're going to see division of two things all throughout this chapter. We start with a covering and what does a covering do? It separates what's above you from what's inside, what's below the covering, right? That's what a roof does. And not only that, the roof itself is made up of two parts and how are they bound together? What are the clasps made out of? Weren't they, weren't they gold clasps? They were gold. And um, where else? Where's What's the gold parts of the tabernacle? Do we remember so far? What's the very first one? I mean, the ark is covered in gold. The ark, yep. And then we have the table, and then we have the lamp. And it's like it's saying what what brings the two things together are the tools we just got from day one, from the ark and the lamp mm. and the and the table. Like... When you and when we think about the rain image, it's like, oh yeah, I guess if I was going to be rain, I would take that light that I was given and give it to someone else. I, I guess I would try and make God's presence into something nourishing that other people could eat. I guess I would, you know, try and help them see what I saw when I met God at my Sinai. And that's the thing that binds these two together. So we have, you know, two curtains like that. The next chunk, it's roughly the same pattern. We have two chunks, except one has a, a an extra sixth chunk. There's 11 instead of 10. So there's a little overhang at the back of the tabernacle. Um, that one has um, bronze clasps, which might uh, 
It's not a significant enough detail to warrant us going on a rabbit trail, but there's stuff there. Um, and then we have two more coverings. So we just have covering, covering, covering all these things, separating, um, what's above from what's below. I mean, these are all practical at the very bottom one. Um, as you mentioned, Brent, it's like made of all these really, uh, beautiful, uh, colors that are woven together. And then on top of that, we have, um, you know, something that, uh, the, what was it? The, is it the ram skin or that? I think that comes later, but you know, we have this decorative layer. We have like a heat insulation layer and then some other layers to like keep, you know, the elements out. Um, and what's really interesting though, is what it says at the very, very end when it talks about the very first, um, the very first, uh, set of curtains, the, the ones made with the, the colorful yarn. And then, um, yeah, go ahead and read that again, Brent. What does that say right at the end there? Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Now, unit there is a little bit of an interpretive choice. The literal translation is so that the tabernacle will become one. Echad. Is the word, the word's echad? It's echad. Yep. Oh. It sh- it'll be whole. It'll be a single thing. And Juicy. Yes. Especially when we were thinking about, you know, what happened before, um, uh, you know, God didn't separate the waters because he wants to keep them apart. In fact, there's kind of this invisible um, uh. cycle of rain where the waters do uh. exchange and interact and intermingle. Just like we talked about in day one where the light and dark, they aren't like just static opposing categories. They enter a dance. The rain is the dance of water. It goes down, it comes back up, it cycles. And the point is, is that it creates a whole unified system. It's, it actually helps clean our water, helps us maintain fresh water. Um, and we can look at that separation and say, oh, man, God's trying to keep us apart. But maybe God is actually inviting us to go through this process of of evaporating up, up into the heavens and then falling back down. And somehow in that process, uh, we're actually creating a more whole humanity. Um, rather than if we just all could read each other's minds and didn't have to have any trouble communicating. Um, all right. Any, any other thoughts before we shimmy on to the, uh, the next part? Oh, I have so many, but I think I'm saving them for some (laughs) PSs at the end. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Perfect. I'm not about to look the fool. I'm going to let you get done. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Perfect. Well then let's, uh, Let's go ahead, or you know what? Actually, one other thing I just want to point out, um, because it, we're going to see it throughout. Um, did it already talk about the the woven cherubim? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So um, we might remember from last time the cherubim um, were on the they were the the ornamentation on top of the uh, altar cover, and it said God uh, was seated like right on top of them, and. Uh, Obviously, cherubim in our day and age are like, you know, cute, chubby babies and not to do the whole like, actually, they were these sick looking fantasy creatures. Um, But um, the point of them uh, throughout scripture is that they are like the um, they're like the chariot of God. They they are the uh, the the things that bear God's presence. Um, A lot of times the word is used to talk about God's steed. Um, But either way, the the. 
the cherubim, the keruvim, they carry God's presence. So everywhere we see this, you know, this beautiful blue and purple and red with like white and gold woven through it, the gold um, embroiderings of the cherubim are representations of like, oh, this is what brings God's presence. So when you look up and you're in the, the tabernacle and you look up and you see that, that image is God's presence is, is here. And we're going to see that image throughout the rest of this chapter. So I wanted to throw that in before we keep reading. Um, but yeah, take it away, Brent. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And jumping down a little bit, overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Which, man, yeah, there's there's that word again. I, I'll let everyone at home uh, uh, guess uh, what word is used there. And ironically, it's not tavni like we talked about, but it's... That's its own interesting thing. It's one of the few things we're not going to be able to dive into. But uh, for those a little hungry, uh, go for it. But um, <clears throat> really what I wanted to focus on here is just the imagery. So we have the right like sense of visually what's going on in the tabernacle. So we have all these upright boards. We skipped all the stuff that talked about how exactly they're kept upright um, and standing on end, but they're all covered in gold. So when you go into the tabernacle up top, you have this beautiful like woven pattern with all these colors and gold. And then the walls are just a flat surface of solid gold or not not literally solid gold, but color wise, it's all, it's just all gold. You have the menorah made of gold. You have the table made of gold. And then further in, you can't really see it, but you have the, the ark made of gold. Um, that's what we're looking at. Um, and with that in mind, let's, uh, let's read the next chunk. Well, hold on a second. So Tavni, what are, are you talking about the plan according to the plan, according to the plan? Although, except that's not the word that's used here. We might expect it to be. Yeah. Okay. Cause but, you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and spoil it. The word that it uses is mishpat. Yeah. That's what I was just seeing in the footnotes. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. According to its mishpat, which... My list of PSs is getting longer. Yeah, Yeah, I would say, like, in general, if we wanted to... If if I wanted to shrink it down to just a little blurb, it's like, okay, the image here is we have... We're talking about mishpat, and we're talking about things that are upright. And so I think that there's probably just a very, very brief Peshat level is talking about how to uh, facilitate this process, there needs to be uprightness to hold the whole thing up. Um, and then like on a more cultural level, this is going to be like mirroring the like cosmological structure where like they thought there was a literal vault, like a literal ceiling, and it was held up by pillars, the pillars of heaven. And then there was, you know, the pillars of earth and Sheol down under there. So that this and, and the, um, the, the other wall that's outside the courtyard, the, Part of it is meant to like be a miniature of all of creation, but I think in terms of why it uses the word mishpat, it's because there's probably some connection being made with with being upright and how that is an integral, uh, uh, like a necessary element for this to function. Okay, like to to put. <laughs> 
yeah, I, I mean, see, I, I want to keep talking about yeah, it. But yeah, yeah, right, but, right. Oh, man. Oh, we, we haven't gotten to the veil, which, yeah, we got to get to the veil. By the way, if anybody needs any, like, uh, people are always asking about, like, cosmological questions of the ancient world. Othmar Keel did a great book focused on symbolism in the Psalms. Mm. Um, but in that, he talks a lot about ancient Near East cosmology. Um, and then, uh, well, Peter ends in Inspiration and Incarnation actually has a diagram that shows exactly what Josh just referenced to with a vault with pillars holding up the heavens. So either of those sources uh, are a great like visual for um, the cosmological conversation that you're having. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of good resources out there. Okay, they'll be in the show notes. <laughs> Beautiful. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite it on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and cast five bronze bases for them. All right. So, yes, we have uh, we have the final uh, chunk of what we're going to be talking about today. There's no more uh, Mishkan details. So nobody freak out or we've arrived. Um, <laughs> we have arrived. So we have, uh, <laughs> yeah. So we have, we have two kind of, uh, curtains, additional curtains that were made that are, uh, essentially the same in design, um, as the, uh, the first layer of the tabernacle covering. And one of them is in the middle of the, the tabernacle and it separates the, the internal, uh, what's often called the, the Holy of Holies, the holiest place where God's presence is and the outer part, which has the, the menorah and the, the table of bread. Um, so it separates those spaces. And then we have another similar curtain that is on uh, the other side of that space where that divides the outside of the tent from the inside of the tent. Again, so many levels of separation here. Um, we have the, the separation between the two different spaces within the tabernacle. We have a separation between outside and inside the tabernacle. Um, we just have all these different ways in which God has made this space separated, divided up, um, which is perfect to a, a, a very fertile ground to think about with this kind of day two lens of like, okay, how are these, how are these spaces doors? How does this facilitate um, love to, to happen. <clears throat> um, so if we're thinking day two terms, you know, we talked about how that separation creates a cycle, um, which just on its face, what, what does that stir up in you too? What's the cycle going on in the tabernacle? Well, if it's God's presence, that's inside of it, God's presence is supposed to be outside too, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Well, we'll get to and that. So next there's week. this flow of God's presence between the in and out. The, um, 
Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Um, but remember, we have the cherubim all over the place. We have the cherubim on the door. We have the cherubim on the uh, on the curtain, and then of course we have the cherubim uh, in you know uh, sculpture form on the uh, on the ark itself. So yeah, if that's the chariot, um, which is that the same word for chariot, like cherub, and that's that's the same root word for chariot, right? Like it's the same word, isn't it? I I think. It's very similar. I think the word for chariot is rakav. Um, oh, you're right. You're right. You're but right. The, uh, but you're not. You're not entirely wrong, Marty, because I believe I've seen rabbinic notes that that say like, oh yeah, that's like that's where that idea came from is because they are anagrams of each other that the the cherubim act as chariots. So you're not okay. you're not at all wrong there. I, I don't think I could be misremembering, but I, I remember that connection being there. So if, if I so if I'm seeing that image, if we're thinking creation, it was that rain. Like rain was the image of coming through Mm-hmm. And this, it would be God's presence in the same way. Oh, and now mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Foreman's notes on Tashuka. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. The rain's desire for the earth and God's yes. desire for his people. It's the same blasted thing. Yes. Oh, that's brilliant. And and not even that. Remember when we were talking about the water cycle and how, like, you know, we might think, oh, it would be much more just if God just made, like, water everywhere on the earth. Sure. But it's like, no, it needs to flow. In fact, it needs yep. to kind of evaporate so it can be cleansed. Yeah. What's one cycle that involves going into the highest reaches of holiness and coming back out, Marty? Well, that's, I mean, that's the Yom Kippur. Like every day our sin goes in, but Yom Kippur reverses it and comes back out. I love that. Absolutely. And what does Yom Kippur do? It It cleanses. It cleanses everything. It atones. That's right. Yep. Um, yep. And, and which atonement in and of itself is is about separation. Um, it talks about a covering yep. that uh, is supposed to separate us from our sin. But anyway, that's... But, but a covering that brings unification. Yes. A covering that brings cleansing. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff. I'm just starting to get angry over here. This is so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if we're the water, like we we pass through heaven, we pass through mm-hmm. God's presence, we are cleansed, yes. and then we return to the earth to nourish it and to do exactly you know, whatever. To do mishpot. Yep. Yes. Yes. Very good, Brent Billings. To do mishpot. And sometimes we need that perspective of being way up high to be able to effectively do mishpot. Um, but not only that, like the other thing to consider here is uh, like, so the rain is not fulfilling its function if it just stays up in the sky, right? Like that's not, that's not a good thing. Yep. And uh, I don't want to develop this too much because we're going to return to it in full force for day five. But um, like there's a problem if the priests just hang out inside the tent all day. And don't go out. Oh, this is, yes. This is exactly what Jesus is critiquing about the temple system later. What they turned it into versus what it was meant to be. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I'll go into more detail in ep- when we get to the, the fifth episode. But um, this is uh, – going through this, I realize it's it's total confirmation of my teaching on Nadav and Avihu. But if you want to really understand why – God had a problem with what they did. Think think about this when you're thinking about how they interacted with this space. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, again, we have this cycle. We have very clear movements between spaces. Even like even if we aren't thinking about 
the internal, like inside the tent, um, movement when, uh, when the priests do sacrifices, they go from outside the tent to inside the tent and they sprinkle blood toward the door and then they come back out. Um, we also have like this, uh, this nourishing cycle. Like there's laws about, um, the priests having to eat their meals in a holy place. So there's all sorts of things. The priests, like you, uh, pointed out earlier, Brent, you can look at the priests as the rain. Like there's so many different ways to divide this. As I said before, there's like, there's literal fractals going on here of division inside of division inside of division. We could see the rain as God. We could see us as the rain. We could see us as priests as the rain, all sorts of ways to look at that. Um, But yeah, we see this flow of inside and outside. Like it has to do that in order for God's presence to be felt by all, which again, going back to is like when you pass through that door, when, when love pulls you across that gap that separates you, that is where you experience God. And, and that that's true for you and the people who receive what you're giving and vice versa. Um, but I, I want now, because we've talked so much in the last episode about the elements inside the tent, I want to strip away all the different, you know, branches of the tree that we've been talking about and just zoom in on the tent itself as a, as a unit <laughs> and uh, as a single entity, single space, and it's divided in the middle. And we talked about the arc and what the arc uh, like means kind of in a spiritual sense about it being like the holding like a sacred space to hold the, the testimonies, the things that communicate the reality of God, even in times of darkness. And then outside that we have the lamp and we have the bread, we have the nourishing aspect of God's presence and the way that, uh, the, the light, um, that we have is meant to, to spread out, to bring, a little taste of Sinai, a little glimpse of God's presence uh, to other people who uh, need that nourishing, um, or to ourselves when we need that nourishing. It's like it's like day the last episode's conversation is how like that conversation is literally housed within the tent that we're zooming in on. Yes, like, we can think of the conversation we just had last episode mm-hmm. and say, okay, today's conversation is talking about the container within which that reality exists. Yes. And and to even take it a step further, like I said before, you could look at the whole thing through any, through the lens of any day, we could look at sure. the passage yep. through light and darkness yep. as a process of love of God, creating a door of, of rest with that comes with darkness as like a cleansing process. Like there, there is a way that you could look at all of this through just the lens of day two and the boundaries here. Yep. But I want us to get, since since we always want to end this with incarnation, um, I want to start thinking about like, okay, why are the tools separated in this way? Like we have this tool that says like, hey, um, think about like how God's presence could be actually nourishing to people. How do you make that happen really? Um, and how do we, how do we shine the light we have in such a way that people see Sinai, not just like our own agenda or whatever that we actually are, um, keeping in a holy sense, we are preserving, uh, God's presence within ourselves to, to give to others, to give them light. And like, why are those tools separated from the things we hold onto when we're in the darkness? Um, 
and actually, I'd, I'd just like to throw that out to the group before I start talking. Well, I, I, I totally see what you're, I think my mind just sees what I think you're, you're getting at. It's like you have one room dedicated to what we identified last week as darkness. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I think you, you, you used the word mystery just a moment ago. Like mm-hmm. there's that room, there's, there's a darkness room, the room that God's in the bigness like it's darkness, but it's also full of transcendence. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you have the other room, which symbolized like our work in bringing. Because in that transcendence, in that we we get we we get the experience. I think we talked about last episode. We experience God, but then we get to go give that to other people that are in darkness. Hence the lamp. Hence the nourishment of the mm-hmm. table. So those two, those two realities: the darkness, the mystery, and the the ministry, I think was the word I want to use, the hospitality, mm-hmm. the generosity. Yes. The out, it's like the internal and the external separated in two separate spaces. Yes, absolutely. I, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. And I think it's important. Like, to me, this reminds me of the way uh, I was brought up in the church to think about, like, testimony, right? And witness and, like... um you know, we're, we're told to, to like try and bring people like into the most holy place. We're telling them about the testimonies that are in our ark. And the conclusion that we come to from that is, listen, God's everywhere all the time. His, this transcendent presence that, that saturates every atom in the universe. Like it's here and I can feel it. Can't you feel it? And the thing is that, uh, those other people don't have that story. They don't have those those testimonies. They don't have that space. It, maybe for some of them it resonates. Maybe they can build their faith trusting in your story. But God says, like, no, that's the thing that's behind the curtain. What's the thing front and center? What you said, hospitality. Like, what they need is just to to know on a very basic level. Like, like uh, you know, we, we always talk about... Uh, you know, in the New Testament, spiritual growth is compared to like uh, human development. Like you kind of start with in this uh, in this spot of needing milk and then graduating to meat. And in this sense, I think it's like, yeah, people just kind of need they need bread and they need light before they can, you know, see those things even when they don't have them in their life. Like if you're if you're going to someone whose life is just miserable and you say, hey, no, actually, God's in the whole thing. What what does that do for them? That doesn't make God's presence more real. If it does, it, it tells them the wrong story. It tells them that God is that darkness, that God wants that darkness. And that's not true. That's not what God said in day one. God said, no, associate me with light. So we've got to give them light. We've got to give them bread. That's what we, that's what our reign should bring. That, that inner space, like you said, Marty, that's for the, that's for the mystery. That's for the, that's for the difficult times that uh, we have to cling on to the story that we already have, but we have to give people the tools to build their own dang story first. They don't, they haven't come out of Egypt the way we have yet. Yep. <laughs> like they, we need to to bring them through in the proper order. Cause it's not loving to just throw them into the Holy of Holies. Like that's overwhelming. That's yep. too much. It's too heavy. Like, the word for glory in Hebrew is also the word for heavy. It's it's a, it's a a burden in a sense, um, and that and inside the the internal part of the tent is where we're supposed to bring those heaviest burdens 
that we can't deal with every single day. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not what it looks like to invite someone into the tent. And that's one of the other things I want us to think about. Um, We talked the last time about how one of the first things that the menorah shows you, you know, if you go from, if you enter the Mishkan and you, uh, and and someone hasn't lit the menorah yet, heaven forbid, and then someone lights it, what are you going to notice? You're going to say, oh, I'm inside a tent. And you're going to see the the cherubim and you're going to see the gold walls and you're going to say, oh, I'm in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be inside the curtain to know that. You should be able to see that from the outside. And this is where, to go back to the earlier, earlier conversation about like, um, why is there this separation? Why not just have, let there be unity between all these parts? And it's because... There is, it's more loving to allow there to be these boundaries, to allow there to be these separations, because we, we can't just experience all of God instantaneously. Like it's something that we as finite human beings have to, we have to grow. We have to give ourselves time to develop. Like that's why, you know, discipleship is a process. It doesn't, it doesn't happen immediately. You can't, uh, uh, do it without, without actually growing into it. And before I say more, I kind of want to open that up, see if y'all have any, if that, that shakes anything loose in y'all's tree. I, I definitely love it because I, I do. I think we look at the tabernacle or the temple and all we see is separation, exclusion, keeping me out rather than a system that was designed to facilitate and to teach us, to speak to us. It's a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. To, to tell us like there are spaces for whatever you're ready for. Mm-hmm. Like if all you're ready for the, is the outer courtyard, there's a space for you. Yes. When you're ready to get beyond that, there's a space for that, but you're, but you still might need a space. That's not quite. And there's a space for that. And there's this, mm-hmm. there's these spaces and we love to just do in or out. We love yes. to just do lost or saved we love to just do whatever two categories rather than but there are spaces for people to experience the presence of god that fit what they're prepared for because if you try to throw them this other experience they'll never receive it so it's not just well tough cookies turn or burn Mm -hmm. it's actually like no there's a space for that person too there's a space to give everybody what they need to experience a little bit of the the nourishing rain, whatever it is that they like, there's a lit, there's a space for them. We can even see this with Jesus, right? You have, I mean, and in fact, I think there's, this might even be intended by the text, but like you have Peter, right? He's the high priest. He's the only one that goes in the the holiest place. You have uh, James and John as well. um, I I think this might be intentional because there were three distinct tribes of Levites. One of them was Aaron's line that were the priests. And then there were two others that helped with different tasks in the tabernacle. And then there's the rest of them. And it's like, you can't have a Jesus movement, all of Peters that, that doesn't work. Right. We we can't make the system. Well, be a Peter or you're, you know, going to hell <laughs> like that. That just doesn't work. <laughs> there are people who followed Jesus, who died for Jesus that were not part of the 12 that, that weren't, rabbis that you didn't spend all day studying Torah, like there is a place in the body for every 
part. Well, I was going to say it depicts the partnership. It, yes. Because, yes. It, yeah, you need Peter and James and John. You need the priests. You need ever because people have to take this to folks. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about the roles of priesthood and helping people navigate their atonement. Like this is the role of priesthood is getting them to the right space to experience God so that it's not just about all of us. us it's that we have to, I think you said, a back and forth, a, a cycle, mm-hmm. uh, an, an up and down going through the door because in order for people to get to the door, you got to come back out of the door mm-hmm. to help people get to it. So there's just this continual, we all have a part to play in this. We're not just consumers of the tabernacle. And not only that, like, if you if you don't know that something is a door, it might look like a wall. Like, going through it, like, tells people, not not convinces them or persuades them, it tells them like beyond any question like oh you can go through that that's not meant to keep me out that's that's just there so that i can go in if i want to okay like there's something um important in that and and to go back to what you said earlier marty about that kind of like binary black and white category we we often slip into like i want everyone hearing this part i mean especially if you're in the western world double especially if you are in america um because this is not like definitely don't hear any of this as like you know finger waggy type stuff because you know we did not we did not choose to be born into this time and place and context um but we do have to be aware that that is exactly what our culture is constantly pushing us to do like um there's that hellenistic binary but not only that like the the capitalist culture we live in um, when we have this sense of like, okay, we have to, we have to, in this binary, get people across this line, convert them from, you know, uh, being in darkness to being in light from unsaved to saved. And the logic is, well, the most efficient way to do that is to do it as quickly as possible with the minimum effort required. That's like the best way to do it. So like I, I was told to have my testimony, my witness story, like to have a five minute version, a two minute version and a 30 second version so that I could just, you know, meet someone in an elevator and, and hopefully get a conversion out of that. And then when I'm sitting with someone over lunch, I can tell the five minute version because we've got more time or whatever. And what that gets us into is saying like, nope, just get them in, get them as quick as they can into there. And that, that is not the process God described here. In fact, we, we don't even see, um, like any consideration for like doing it quickly. It's, it's doing it genuinely like the, not to say it's a lazy system that, that doesn't care about, uh, bringing this to people. Um, it's not apathetic, but it's saying, you know, it's, it's more important that people actually get to see, the light of God and to see it as God's light for it to not be adulterated for it to not end up becoming darkness. As Jesus said, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When we go out and we tell someone they're looking at God's light, but because we've been so focused on, you know, time is money. Let's get it done as quick as we can. Let's just get people over the line. That light can look like darkness. I mean, we know that the world testifies to that all the time. We we know how they look at Christians, particularly here in America. Like I know that the, that line has been definitely blurred. That light has been dimmed in a lot of ways. And so when we approach this, 
we have to know that the the importance of these boundaries is so that we actually get to help people see God's love, which means that there's no shortcuts. We have to go through the door God is building. There's no quicker way. You go through the door that God is building, and it's not the one that's the most convenient. When the rain falls, it doesn't like fall just enough to meet the needs of the patch of ground beneath it, right? It just it, it just falls. All of it falls. And that's how we have to think of what we are bringing to the world. That's what our hospitality has to look like. And that's the, the, the kindness we have to hold in our hearts for people that are going through this process. We, we have to be building these boundaries like between what we kind of keep private, the conversations we don't have the the stuff that we uh, the, the the issues the people the struggles people have that we decide not to to poke at just yet like where do we give openly and where do we kind of hold back and the main question is how do you draw those boundaries for the sake of other people right how do you how do you draw those boundaries to ease other people's burdens and to be more specific on what that like front end looks like like uh to go back to day one stuff what does it look like in your life practically think about the people around you let their let their faces be in your mind when you hear this what would it look like for you to make god's presence as nourishing as food like like as tasty as like freshly baked bread Think about that smell. Think about those people. Think about bringing them a fresh loaf of bread and say, how can I make God part of that? How can I hide kingdom in that? Like a little bit of yeast. And in addition to that, with the lamp, how can you use the light that God's given you, the insight, the understanding, the awareness of what's going on around us? How can you make that into something that when you share that with people, the first thing it does, the primary thing it does is show them that they're in the house of God, that they are, that the, the house it's separated, but the house is still one. It's a chad. It doesn't matter that they're not in as close as humanly possible to God. They're in the house. How do we tell them that with our story? That I think is kingdom work. That is, that is love as Jesus called us to. That is the door. How do we bring people through that door? And, um, one other thing I want to say in this, and I'm sure, you know, Marty and Brent will have some thoughts. So I want to create space for them, but we have to remember too, again, we're Hellenistic, we're American, a lot of us. Um, sorry, I don't mean to speak for everyone, but uh, certainly on this side of the microphones, we are, uh, we have to remember that this is not, you know, just because it's been described and delineated does not mean this is a static process. It doesn't mean we sit at one point. We don't just get to say, Oh, Hey, I like the menorah thing. I'm just going to do the menorah thing and push the menorah button, uh, until I die. Like we, we also have to flow between these spaces. We have to be like water in these sacred spaces. Where do you just need to take a break, get some distance, go to God, bring out the heavy stuff that's on your heart, sit in some darkness, maybe even intentionally, just to let God's presence be heavy upon you? Where do you need to to get out of your head and go 
just be with people, just be sharing bread and a love that other people may not even understand what it is or where it comes from, but that love that comes from God is there nonetheless, just for them to eat, just light for them to say, oh, hey, I'm in a good creation. That's all your light is supposed to do, like at the the bare minimum. How can you, how can you give that to people? But also you're a part of that process too. When do you need some distance? When do you need some nourishing? How do you reenter God's process or presence in a healthy way? And also to that point, how do we help God in building that door? These are all very deep questions. Um, and uh, I, I would be really interested to hear if Brent and Marty have anything else to say. Well, as you're talking about all these different elements, I'm wondering if you want to talk through um, this picture that we have in the presentation. Ah, uh, yes. So the picture here in the presentation is not entirely accurate. It has an element we haven't talked about, which is the golden altar, which is a little bit complicated because... Um, That's the small little box towards the bottom of the image. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about that until the near the very, very end. That'll be day six, episode six. Um, but uh, yeah, that um, the rabbis will say that it's right up near the, the veil between the two spaces. Um, however, the book of Hebrews talks about it as if it was on the other side of the curtain, which is probably how I'll end up teaching that, but we'll see where the spirit leads. <laughs> um, but either way, don't just... At this point, don't worry about it. Um, I think uh, they also, I'm trying to remember. I, I think they do have the, um, last time I think I said something about the uh, the menorah and the table being on switched sides, but I don't know. The, the problem with all this is the rabbis also have a lot of very um, highly technical disagreements about these things. But the main reason I chose this picture is because the, um, the, the, the wooden walls, very, very accurate description from how I've heard rabbis analyze it to uh, what the text says. And it gives that sense of like, just what the space will look like. And a little bit of like what that cloth, um, that was used for the curtains and for that first layer of the covering, what they would look like. And just kind of the, the dimensions of this space, and what it would look like if you were, you know, teeny enough that that, uh, you know, that altar was, you know, uh, a little, only a little shorter than you. Um, but yeah, I think it gives a good sense of the space, um, especially if you're a visual person and are trying to get your hands around like, okay, what am I looking at here? This is all just a bunch of words. It's a great thing to look at. Probably should have said that at the beginning of the episode, man. But, uh, <laughs> Well, as far as the, uh, as far as the details, like being exact or not, like you said, there were some, uh, I think you said it was in the Talmud or maybe in Torah itself, uh, about recreating the tabernacle. Oh yes. I mean, there's, there's certain Torah, uh, proscriptions against copying certain elements. Like you're, I, I, the one I know specifically is, uh, you're not supposed to try and recreate the incense or the anointing oil. And it says that I think, uh, explicitly in Torah for at least one of those, if not both. Um, and so a lot of times, um, the, what the, what the rabbis teach essentially is like, don't like, don't make an incense and just use those ingredients, even though you probably won't get the ratio, right? Like we were told not to do it. So add an extra thing just so you, uh, 
so you don't accidentally recreate it. So I, I don't know if some of these details, I don't mean to critique this. This looks like they really, um, did their research. So th- these quibbles, thank you for saying that, Brent, because whoever made this did an amazing job. Um, and they maybe, uh, they maybe have, uh, switched some details so that they aren't in danger of, of, uh, you know, desacralizing a sacred place for a diorama um yeah and and have switched things so it isn't an exact replica an intentional switch an intentional switch um perhaps or or you know the, the other thing is that there's like i said there's a lot of there's a lot of rabbinic arguments there's a whole i'll talk about it when we get to an episode that deals with it but there's a huge debate in the talmud apparently about whether or not the ark and the the cover of the ark are considered one whole thing or two separate things. And the argument hinges on like whether Moses anointed them separately or as one single unit. And uh, there's a, a rabbi I really like up in Toronto that has a great teaching on it, but I'll, I'll drop that in the show notes when we get to the, uh, the anointing part. Um, but anyway, yeah, there, there's, there's so much, <sighs> there's so much good stuff here, um, in terms of like what you can dig into, uh, from an analytical perspective. Um, and I encourage everyone to do that because it, it all, from my experience, it always pays off. Um, God's always going to do something with that. It's amazing how much detail there is in the text on how to create this. And yet there's still debate on exactly how <laughs> yes. everything works. Yes. And I mean, and that also gets back to like, you know, if, uh, uh, like, I mean, you know, and we even have that today, like we, we call certain pieces of wood two by fours, even though they aren't literally two inches by four inches. Yeah. Not and, anymore. Anyway. You know, someone, yeah, exactly. Not anymore. And people a thousand years in the future might look back and, and see some of our, you know, they might not know what a joist is or what perpendicular means or something. I don't know. And they might look at it and be like, okay, I have no idea what's going on here. We think our stuff's very detailed, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? We, we know that cause we're in our own context. So this may have been very, very clear back then. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I just had three passing PSs to get us out of here. Mm. One is like just the, the, the allegorization of this stuff. I know for some, they're going to like, just love it. And for some, they're going to be like, what are we doing? Allegorizing these things. This is about a construction of a physical building. Mm. Creation was about the physical creation of a physical universe. And we're like, allegorizing lessons out of this and and judaism is full of this stuff like josh isn't just arbitrarily like pulling this stuff out of nowhere Mm -hmm. like and there are when i read people like philo or whatever like there's allegorizing that can go way too far than my comfort zone but you also have to like acknowledge some of these crazy details in the physical the rabbi said there has to be more going on here this has to be more than just physical because why does that word become mishpat here? Mm-hmm. Like, why do that when the author clearly knows how to use the word tavnit? Mm-hmm. Like, why all of a sudden, in the exact same phrase, change a word like that? Or a myriad of other details that are so, so consistent with these ideas. It's like, that's just coincidence? You got to be kidding me. No way. So so there's that, which yeah. leads me to... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Par- go, no, go ahead. I, I was going to say, too, like the... like to me what really underscores that is is how much like the ordering of this stuff doesn't make sense on its own like you know like what we just talked about the golden altar the golden altar is 
in the same spaces as what we talked about in chapter 25, but it's not in chapter 25. Right. And right. when you study that and you say, oh, wait, this matches up perfectly with day six, yep. not in the sense that like man was created and the gold, you know, it's, it's, right. it's not a literal connection, but there are spiritual connections to be made. Right. Which leads to, at, at least in some Jewish thought, and this may be a little bit more textually critical than others, like they have examined the creation story as potentially allegorical to the creation of like God's people of Israel, like the people of God in the garden. Mm -hmm. And so when you see like all of a sudden day two becomes exactly the teaching point that we're using in the tabernacle, Mm -hmm. because that would have been exactly what the lesson is that God's trying to teach his people in the midst of creation. Mm -hmm. I have placed you here kind of in the midst of this firmament firmament between waters above and waters below, because I've asked you to be priests and I need you to occupy this space. Mm-hmm. I need you to facilitate this door. Uh, third PS unrelated. I just can't quit thinking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus mm-hmm. and this chasm between us, oh, which obviously so isn't a huge <laughs> chasm. It's not a, it's obviously not a huge chasm because they're talking with each other. They're all like hanging out like, hey, hey, hey. But there's this chasm or this door or this separation. Uh, and this and the rich man just won't like it's almost it's almost like this conversation. Like I just kept I couldn't quit thinking about that parable because I'm like, he has to choose and he refuses to engage the door. He wants somebody else to come through the door for him. Send Lazarus to bring me what? Water. Oh my gosh. Yes. Send Lazarus to bring Wait, but, me just a little this. bit of water. Before, before they died, where was Lazarus? At at the man's gates, at, at his door. At the oh, man's gates. On. He was as close to the door as he could get, <laughs> and he got stepped over. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Marty, Absolutely. that's brilliant. That's yeah, so, so brilliant. I just couldn't quit thinking about that parable as you were teaching, and that's what came to mind. So that's my last PS. But to the, I, I think you brought up a Great, uh, great point with your last two that I, I want to say something about too. Like we know in the New Testament, we're told that our bodies are the temple, are the tabernacle. Like these are things we are supposed to incorporate. Like yes, that if this is how God's presence works in physical space, if this is the the way He set it up, we should be attentive to that. We're called to be priests. We were we're at Pentecost. We became little mini Sinai's like so much of the new Testament, like, like Jesus is the firstborn of what a new creation. And we're called to be like that. So we, we need to see creation and tabernacle as, as like central theses to, to Christian living. Sure. I I, I believe that very strongly. Right. Absolutely. Okay. We did it all within time, Marty. Oh my goodness. I I I'm just I I think Brent's trying to like drag this out. He wants it to be just a little bit longer. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I no, think we I just I think we nailed it. I don't like. I'm so overwhelmed with the details and the depth of what is going on here that I just am speechless. Apparently, so mm-hmm. uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, we'll let people mull it over, and uh, yeah, there's there's so much stuff to dig into. So much stuff that we didn't even mention like even even just little details in the repetition of exodus 26 mm-hmm. like we didn't read all of it because it is repetitious but also there are like there's just little things in there that you can catch like oh yeah spend some time in it and and think about like where like there's cardinal directions given and it's like well what like there's just all sorts of things um to explore and um yeah like we're we're really just scratching the surface here even at at this rather long episode we're we're just scratching the surface so 
um, yeah, I hope I hope you have a chance to spend some time and, and dig in even deeper on this. Amen to that. So if you want to get a hold of us, the three of us are all on Slack pretty regularly. So I, I would say just hop on the Slack and check that out. Um, we do have a presentation for this episode. So check that out if you weren't able to um, to look at that recreation uh, in, intentionally, potentially, potentially intentionally <laughs> um, miscreated recreation. Um, check that out. And then uh, those books that I've already mentioned will be in the show notes. So well, all of that is at BayModDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymall Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.